Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. This is God speaking. God doesn't say things like, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. God is the one who holds all power. He's the one who could blink and make everything disappear. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the book of Job. I thank you for the lessons that you teach throughout the scriptures. I thank you, Lord, that you put things in perspective. We, uh, we just naturally have hearts hardened by sin. We don't often see clearly. If it wasn't for your grace, we wouldn't see it all. We walk around as blind, dead men. I thank you, Lord, that the word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Even to the joint marrow of the bone is discerner of both the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Lord, as we examine a little bit more of this book, I pray that you would just bring to light the truth uh, of man and God and how we relate to one another, how we should relate to one another. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is... uh, the third in a, a message, message, the unseen contest, which is really from the book of Job and deals with uh, really Satan's contest, so to speak, with God, a contest of words, of ideas, of philosophy. God, of course, the God of truth, the devil, the father of lies. And so uh, there that behind the scenes that's gone on. In part three, though, where we spoke about Elihu, approached Job with love, respect, and truth. And after he spoke to Job and reproved him for improperly responding to his three stumbling block friends, he was able to, Job was able to hear what God had to say. I mean, that's just the the clear truth of it. You know, when a godly man speaks, his hearers or her, hearers have the ears, the open to hear God's voice. Uh, It matters not what men have to say. Really, it it really does. All that matters is what God says. A man of God usually will speak, will speak, from the truth of the word of God, either by quoting or giving the, the principle or the truth from God's word. And when that's done in love, when it's done without compromise, then men can hear the voice of God. The, uh, the thought has come up in my mind, you know, is there sarcasm in the Bible? Some have said to me, that would be sin. Others have said to me the Bible is full of sarcasm. The Cambridge Dictionary says, 
quote, the use of remarks that clearly mean the opposite of what they say, made in order to hurt someone's feelings or to criticize something in a humorous way. I think to myself of Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4, quote, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Um, Hurting a person's feelings, if hurting a person's feelings was sin, then Jesus sinned and he never did. Jesus spoke in in ways that were, (laughs) well, the average person doesn't usually, unless they're really mean-spirited, speak to people. You say, God is mean-spirited. No, God is God. When we think of sarcasm as a man speaking to a man, that's one context. And then there's God speaking to men. God puts men in their place. We're going to see that in just a a minute or two in, in, in the book of Job. When God puts a man in his place, he can do it however he desires. We have to realize how far above men God is. Well, God is a God of love. Yes, God absolutely is a God of love, and he's equally a God of truth. He's a God of grace, which offers eternal forgiveness, and he's a God of eternal wrath. Let's remember that there's two sides to God. And when God says something that would hurt a person's feelings, it's always to wake them up before it's too late. That's a whole different context. I'm not going to spend too much time going into this. I'm really at an end. But now that Job is in a position to hear God, I want to just speak a little bit from Job chapters 38 to 41, and then we'll go to a couple other different ways of looking at this. So then Job, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? He's asking a question like, does he know the answer? Of course he does. Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? I don't know if that would hurt your feelings, but if a person said it to me, and again, we don't have the right to speak to one another the way God has the right to speak to us. That would definitely hurt my feelings. That probably would hurt yours. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. I mean, come on. (laughs) Really? Instruct God? We're going to instruct God. The one who is omniscient, and he knows everything. He always knows everything. He knew everything before he created everything. He knew, he knows into eternity what's happening in hell and in heaven. This is God. And God just said, what did God just say? You instruct me. Is that not sarcasm? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. I mean, he's just laying Job out here, man. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or... What were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. Basically he's saying, you know, when he rose the land 
you know, it just, he set all the borders. The water couldn't go anywhere. And it still doesn't to this day. And that's God's doing. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, he just goes on and on about things that cannot possibly be done by men. And he's saying this to Job. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. He's hitting him where he wants Job to wake up about what he knows and what he doesn't know. This is key in the story. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? Who has left? I'm just skipping here around in chapter 38. Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? I mean, who does these things? Nobody does these things. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Chapter 39, do you know the time of the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? I mean, all the things throughout earth, how much do we know? I mean, just what's right in front of us, right? Everything else, we're oblivious to it. I mean, this is kind of the point. He goes on, you know, will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain? Here he's talking about a, a wild donkey or a wild ox. I mean, these are nothing to God. Not, everything is nothing to God, but everything is big to us. He talks about the stupidity of ostriches. He talks about a horse and the might of the horse, you know, compared to men. I mean, we don't wrestle with horses. I mean, it, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So in these statements come from Job where he's battered by his friends and he's in a self-defense mode and he protests. He starts to protest God and God is responding to this. Now remember, we have the devil to blame in very real time and three friends who are a huge stumbling block to Job. I mean, in the midst of intense suffering, he's being accused that all of this is because he's no good. And he's the best man on the planet, according to God. So God says to him, will the fault finder, this is Job finding fault with God because he's in pain and everything I just said, contend with the Almighty. Almighty God is just one. Let him who reproves God answer it. And Job responds, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I mean, he's, his mouth is shut. He can't. There's nothing really to say. But God just continues to go on after Job makes these replies. And I'll go into that next time. Job's replies. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowing of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together, bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Again, these are hard words that God speaks to Job in a questioning manner. He's questioning. He's asking questions to goat Job. So Job would wake up. 
Then he talks about the behemoth, which is an unknown creature, no matter what you might see in commentaries. God, it says, can you draw, God speaks, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? I don't know what that is. Is that you know, the biggest blue whale or if that's a dinosaur in the sea? But whatever it is, it's something man just doesn't mess with unless he has uh, a death wish. Many men used to die in the boats trying to, you know, go after whales. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs. He goes on. And he goes, and, that, and he basically just ends by saying, behind him, speaking of a large creature, behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is a king over all the sons of pride. And that's it. He never tells him about the devil. He never tells him about his plans, what he's doing in his life. He never tells him anything. He just lays him out by making himself known in ways which don't even really begin to reveal that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's, he, he knows everything. He has all power. He's everywhere present at the same time. And he made time. He's eternal. All of this is not even really covered while as God puts Job in his place by talking about creation and how God is over all creation. That's basically what it is. And we are all in the midst of creation while God is over all of it. It's just made to humble Job. That's what it's all about. Now, having considered this and thinking to ourselves, in this portion of Job, Job, God is revealing himself exactly the way I said, in this manner to humble men. Now, I want us to look, take a little bit of a turn, and understand the way God has humbled himself. And I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, and verses 1 to 13. I mean, he's asking man to humble himself, and certainly man should humble himself before Almighty God. But now this is Almighty God. Should Almighty God humble himself before man? That's a question, just asking. I quote from Philippians 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, and that's the way these questions are stated in Greek, if there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and compassion, and there is. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Is man in the church today arrogant? Is man arrogant by always doing the one-upmanship and we have the way things are complete while there's differences between churches all over the world? Fractured into a thousand churches, the Protestant church is, and then they make excuses for themselves and say things, silly things, like on primary issues, uh, we should be united, 
and on secondary issues, we should have grace. Just excuse the fact that what God has just said here is it's not looked at as a command to make God's joy complete. Be of the same mind. That does not mean agree to disagree. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. No conceit, nothing, nothing like that. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That means the Baptist should not mock the Presbyterian and the Presbyterian should not mock the, the Baptist and, and so on. Do not, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, in this context of what we should be before God to make his joy complete, we then read these words. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the second person of the Trinity, This is the eternal Son of God, equal with God in every way. Three different persons, one God. Don't try to explain it. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He didn't come as a king. He came as a slave. He came as a man. This is like a man becoming an ant or a bug. And and actually... That doesn't really say it because there's no infinite distance between a man and an ant, but there is an infinite distance between a man and God. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is the eternal life that's being spoken of here. Eternal life even death on a cross. That's the death of a criminal. The torturous death of a criminal. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now having said that, This is jumps ahead, you know, past the cross and is looking at what happened when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now and all of this has been bestowed upon him. But he had to get there through the cross. So on the cross from Psalm 22, we we read the following, we can read the following words. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Jesus is speaking these words from the cross during daylight, from 9 a.m. until noon. These words can be heard, not all these words, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the cry of Jesus 
before he, he dies, which actually is after the darkness at 3 o'clock. But the other terms that are used to explain is thirst and all. They're, they're from the cross, not during the time of noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All the other words were before it went dark. And then after the darkness is lifted, yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. He's speaking as a man on the cross. He's speaking as a man to Almighty God. To you they cried out and they fled to safety. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. So he goes from, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? knowing who he is, the son of God, to, but I am a worm and not a man. He regards himself only as a worm. Why? A disgrace of mankind and despised by the people. He's hanging on a cross. People despised people, others who were crucified. The Romans certainly did. The, uh, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, w- went to that fate. No Roman would go to that fate, fate only, only Gentiles who were not Romans, and certainly the Jews. All who see me deride me. Now he's looking at how people are looking at him. They sneer, they shake their heads, saying, turn him over to the Lord, let him save him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. They're mocking Jesus. Yet you are he who brought me from forth from the womb. So as he turns from how people look at him, he knows how God looks at him and how he has looked at him from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So he's in the person of a man, not his eternal state, which was almighty God, which God is spirit, do not be far from me for trouble is near. This is God speaking. God doesn't say things like, do not be far from me for trouble is near. God is the one who holds all power. He's the one who could blink and make everything disappear. And then it's just God. That's who God is. But here he's in trouble. For there is no one to help. God doesn't need help. But he's asked, he's in, he needs help. There's no one to help. And when he says there's no one to help, in the depth of his soul, he knows what's coming at noon. And he knows the God that he's speaking to right now is the one that's going to give him the trouble. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Men don't compete with bulls. You do, you die. They open their mouths wide at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. I mean, this is the Roman torture on the cross that just tears a man limb from his skin off his body. And in that state, they put him on a on a cross, led to de- left to die. My strength is dried up 
Like a piece of pottery and my tongue clings to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. That's not a pet. That's a dog. It's an animal that was feared. They were ravenous dogs and, and they're, they're, they're biting at his feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, of course, from the scourging. They divide my garments among them, the, the Roman soldiers. All prophesied in the psalm of everything that took place, and they cast lots for my clothing. He's quoting from his own word. But you, Lord, do not be far away. You are my help. Hurry to my assistance. He knows he's not coming. Save my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. All these pictures of these horrible ways of death. I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. He's looking in the future now of what he will do. He's looking beyond the cross. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Now he's giving advice to men. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor scorned the suffering of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he, he heard, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your heart live forever. These are hard words. These are really hard words. As he praises God, the Lord, who is about to beat him with an, an eternal beating for the sins of those whom he dies, who are licking up, biting at his feet. All the ends of the earth will remember to turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth. We're talking like the kingdom that he's going to sit in. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This doesn't, that's not taking place right now. The majority of the world is on its way to hell. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in that way. Men are not doing that right now. But they will. When God turns the hearts of men to worship him. Some, many, from the heart. Others, because they have to. But they'll do it willingly because men are sheep and they follow along. And all the leaders and all the saved and all the saints will be, be there prospering in the kingdom of Christ. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. A posterity will serve him. It will be told to the Lord, to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. This is a generation not like the one that we look at right now. So what we're looking at right now in these, in these verses is the comparison between Almighty God, who sits in the heavens, who can speak down to Job in a sarcastic way in order to humble him before the God 
with whom he has to do. Job is a righteous man. He's been torn asunder by the devil, not God. God entered into a contest who is sovereign over all things for the purpose of making Job better. We'll talk about that next time. The plan is a good plan, as it always is. Will not the God of all the earth do what's right? He does what's right because he determines what right, what's right, and then he does it. He doesn't do it because he has to do it or because there's some outside source. He does it because he is the source. He's the source of all good. He's the source of all that's righteous and holy. And here, he's speaking from the cross where before he was speaking down to Job. Now he's speaking up to God. He's, he's hanging between heaven and earth. He's hanging between Almighty God and the dogs of the world. The people who in 40 days will recognize that they had crucified the Son of God and they will cry out, what can we do? And in that hour, in that moment, Peter will say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, turn from your sin and be placed into the body of Christ so that you can be raised from the dead in newness of life to him. I add those words, but they're scriptural. So now I, what I want to do is I want to conclude this portion and this message with the idea which I get from Romans chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. I want us to think about this because it, it hit me just recently. And you know, in the past, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, any of these messages, any of this teaching, on, on occasion, not often, but on occasion, I've spoken to the fact that men in the Old Testament receive the same Holy Spirit that men do in the New. Men in our pride, we, we look at texts that say that God breathed on the apostles and, and go and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and we look at those and we understand that, well, it hadn't happened yet, so it couldn't possibly have happened in the Old Testament. Well, the fact remains that uh, in the Old Testament, men were sinful, dead in their souls, separated from God, and blind and unrighteous, unholy haters of God, just as they are in the New. And until a man is born again, which Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man before the cross, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven certainly can't enter it. You're a t the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. Why again would Jesus say a man to a man before the cross, why don't you know you have to be born again? Ezekiel tells us that the covenant, the new covenant, is a covenant where God places his law on men's heart and he writes them on their mind. God does this. When does that happen? Well, Moses got it in stone, but he understood you had to keep the law, as did Joshua and Caleb, as, as every man in the Old Testament. Now, are men in the Old Testament with the knowledge of the new? No. And that's a key point. Because men in the New Testament are given revelation far beyond, but not so far that men in the Old Testament 
didn't understand some very basic and very important truths. And you can tell this by the way, the way people speak. Just read through the Psalms and how David understood the need for sacrifice. And that sacrifice, that sacrifice pointed clearly to the coming Messiah. Did David understand that God would become a man? Probably not. Did he understand that God was Savior? Absolutely. Moses understood that in Genesis, in uh, Exodus chapters 3 and 4. God revealed himself as the I am that I am and kept saying repeatedly, I will save my people. Every time that statement is made, it, it has indication far beyond the, the bondage in Rome or Egypt or, or the harshness of this life. And Job in this book said his, that his Redeemer lived. He, he said he needed a, a mediator. He did not have one. And he said in his flesh he would see God. He understood the resurrection. All of these things are tied into whether they had a spirit that revealed these things in their mind and heart or they were doing it in the flesh, which can't be done. Men come up with all kinds of crazy philosophies and false gods and basically insanity and they tear down trees and they say, this is my God and all of this is all in the blindness of men that Job and Enoch, and, and um, David, and Abraham, and all these men would be, apart from the grace of God, and apart from the new covenant, which was inaugurated during New Testament times, but was carried out in the Old Testament. Because otherwise, no man could have been saved. God would not have accomplished what he did in the, in the uh, chastening process, meaning the making men better like a Jacob who was uh, a liar and a thief and just not a good guy. And God turns him into an Israel when standing before Pharaoh and he could have anything he wanted and he said, I don't want anything you have. A man who had been sanctified by the work of Almighty God to turn him into something literally that was awesome, good, holy, and this can be said about all of them, the Davids and the Abraham. and they, they go from one place in the story where you find them to a completely different place at the end of their life. David's laying in a bed with a woman to keep warm, and he's not sleeping with her. Transformation in all these men, and I'm expected to believe that this has happened without the indwelling Holy Spirit, of which it says Joshua is a man in whom dwelt the, Holy, the Spirit of the living God. How did, how, why is that verse there? Okay, so here's what I want to look at in Romans chapter 4. I, I could go on all day about proofs from, from the scriptures of why men in the Old Testament had to be redeemed. They had to be raised in newness of life. But here's a great one. For if those, and this is accomplished through Christ on the cross. Remember that. This almighty God who humbles himself to this place we can't comprehend of a suffering that he goes through in the darkness, and we're not even talking about it, because we really don't know, except in very basic terms, that 
God Almighty the Father poured out his wrath that belonged to us that we would have experienced in eternity upon Christ, who only Christ could absorb because he's God and he could take it into eternity because he is eternal. Not as a man, but in, as divine son he is. So in Romans chapter 4, 14 through 18, this is what it says. For if those who are of the law are heirs, meaning the Jewish people, they have, were given the law as Gentiles were not, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Meaning, if you're keeping the law, if we're heirs, the Jews are heirs because of the law, then there's no faith because faith receives the promise as Abraham was said to be justified before God by faith in Genesis 16. He believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. He became righteous, justified, as in Romans 4, justified before God, made just before God by the coming blood of Christ on the cross. And this was not through the law. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. It's not those who are of the law. It's those who are of faith. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So in the heart of a man, if he's not trying to justify himself by the law, there is no violation. Why? He's been justified by Christ. But if he's not justified by Christ through faith, then he's working his way to heaven and there's wrath coming. That's the way it works. Verse 16, in this context, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Guaranteed to the descendants. Why? Because God's made a promise. The guarantee is on the promise that God makes, not anything that man does. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So when he says, not only to those who are of the law, those are Jewish people who are brought in under the law, but then that law is done away by faith when they are of the faith of Abraham. So a Jew is justified and a non-Jew or a Gentile is justified both by faith. And Abraham becomes the father of all who are saved through faith. This is very key because in verse 17 it gets very interesting. As it is written, so now we're talking from the word of God, quoting, Paul quoting from the word of God, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. God speaking to Abraham. I have made you a father of how many? Many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed that is God who gives life to the dead. Let me read this again. In the presence of him whom he believed that is God who who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. So Abraham is believing in God who gives life to the dead. He he offered up his son. He believed God would raise him from the dead. He believed in the resurrection from the dead. 
This is Abraham. This is who is the father of many nations. And as a father, you know what happens? A father begets sons, and sons become like the father. Very key point. Father begets sons, daughters, people, and those people become like the father. They become like the father. So, if he's the father of many nations, the nations have to become like him. (laughs) Right? Believe that is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Final verse, verse 18. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So the descendants shall be like who? The descendants shall be like Abraham. The descendants shall be like Abraham. And now I'm being told, but Abraham didn't have the Holy Spirit. He wasn't born again. He wasn't raised from the dead. All of these things actually didn't happen in his lifetime. Now everyone's raised from the dead and we're all perfected. That's no big deal. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the state of Christians right now who receive the Holy Spirit. They're born again. They're they're regenerated. They're raised from the dead, as Romans tells us, uh, 5 through 8, that we're in Christ and our, our identity is in Christ. And as Christ died on the cross, he died once, and now he lives unto God and so we are, find our identity in the person who died. It's done. The death is over. And now there's resurrection life in Christ. This is key to over, living an overcoming life for the Christian. It's key for living in the, in the spirit. It's key for understanding that our identity is in Jesus Christ. It's not in the old man. It's not in the man that's dead. It's not in the flesh. We owe nothing to the flesh. That will just kill us. What is owed is Christ because there we find our identity in him. And we just talked about what went on in the, at the cross through Psalm 22 and all that was going on in the heart of, not all, but what was going on in Jesus Christ. Why? So that we could experience life from the dead. And I'm saying all Old Testament saints experience that life from the dead. With the knowledge that we have, no. And with that knowledge comes responsibility. So if anything, New Testament saints have much greater responsibility than Old Testament saints because they didn't know clearly, as we do, have the doctrines like identification in Jesus Christ. I mean, we got that clear. They did not have it. It was murky. But that does not mean that their heart and their mind was not transformed. And here it is. Why? Why am I saying it? Let me say it one more time. Uh, in concluding. But all those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Me, I, and you, if you're born again, you have come into existence which did not happen before when you were born in Adam's race. 
We were born sinners. We were born blind. We were born dead. We were born haters of God. We were born rebellious. We were born disobedient. And we needed to repent. And that repentance could never have taken place unless we were first raised from the dead. In hope against hope, he believed that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. If you're a Christian, you are a son of Abraham because you have the faith of Abraham because only the faith of Abraham can save you. And that's the faith of one who knows they're dead and they need to be raised in newness of life. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the message of Job. I thank you for the message of Psalm 22 of Philippians chapter 2. I thank you, Lord, for Romans chapter 4, 14 through 18. I thank you the way your word just dovetails together. It fits together in every part like a perfectly made puzzle. And it just lays out before us a scene that we could never otherwise understand. I thank you that you have been working in people from the beginning, from Abel, maybe Adam and Eve, from Abel, who died as the first martyr, right through the martyrs who are dying in the 21st century around the world as they are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the resurrection from the dead, that is imparted in every child of God from the beginning until now, and will be right through the millennial kingdom, when, when all the fulfillment of Christ being in control, revealing how he changes men's hearts, and he will turn the earth into a place of plenty, not just in food and things, but more importantly, men's hearts made right where worship is only to Jesus Christ and all false worship will be eliminated and only the truth will be spoken until the very last days when men who will have heard it and heard it again and again but can't see it and will again listen to the devil and mount up against Jesus Christ and be eliminated and cast before the great white throne to be judged. Lord, if anyone is hearing this message and is not yet in the kingdom, I pray that they would enter the kingdom through faith, the faith of Abraham. And they would understand that their, their life is in, in desperation. They are in a desperate place for the cross of Christ because there is no way to Christ apart from the cross. There is no way to Christ apart from the resurrection from the dead. There is no way to exercise faith and repentance apart from resurrection from the dead. Lord, I ask that you would give people eyes to see, those who are lost, ears to hear, a heart to perceive, to really get it, and to come to Christ. For the believers, Lord, I pray, we would be humble people. We would take the admonitions of Philippians 2 and, and, and Psalm 22, as Christ humbled himself in a way that is unspeakable, un, 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 beyond knowledge, beyond understanding beyond comprehension. Take these, these lessons to heart and understand that we are only a people who love you when we are reborn. 
I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.